Hosea chapter 9 is where we are. It um, continues really the Lord explaining in detail, you might say in painful detail, um, you know, the sins of the people of Israel. And these are the indictments against them. And, and this is where it's that courtroom scene where the Lord is just really making a um, kind of a, a, a hard line prosecution in, a, in the courtroom. And it's kind of brutal, but at the same time, the Lord, if he's gonna uh, you know, judge these people, he doesn't wanna leave any room for them to say, hey, we didn't know. We didn't know what we did wrong. Uh, that could never be the case because the Lord through all the prophets uh, explained over and over and over to the people of their wrongdoing. And even in the New Testament, you know, Jesus talked about this, how, man, you think you're gonna listen today? Oh, the prophets, you've blown them off for centuries, Jesus said, and you didn't listen to what they said. And Jesus would say that would be the final indictment against the people even during the first century, during the early church when Christ came in. Uh, he referred back to these guys like Hosea, Jeremiah, Isaiah. These guys were uh, proclaiming the truth, uh, unashamed, unafraid, just boldly declaring truth. But the people, what we're gonna learn tonight, they thought all this was a bunch of foolishness. Um, isn't it interesting how humanity can think things are foolish that are actually total wisdom and righteousness. I think we're seeing that a bit today and we'll see that uh, as we read on. Um, and so here we kind of have this, this whole thing, chapter nine and 10 continues this charge. Uh, chapter 11, by the way, is gonna be nice. It's gonna sort of make a, a little bit of a turn where we're gonna talk about the love of God. So even with his judgment and wrath that's coming, we always get back to his mercy and his love that endures forever. And so we're gonna hit that, uh, Lord willing, at some point uh, in chapter 11. Um, but there's six main things that happen when someone walks away from God and it walks in rebellion against God. And that's, that's really what chapter nine is gonna do. It's gonna list things here and you can jot them down if you want. Um, we're gonna see six things that happen when you, when you rebel and when you turn against the Lord. And there are things that can subtly start to change in your own personal life and in your own personal walk. Um, but you might not even notice it happening. And that's why it's good to maybe for us, for you and me to check ourselves with this description here. Um, let's start in verse one. Rejoice not, O Israel, for joy as other people. For thou hast gone a whoring from thy God. Thou hast loved a reward upon every corn floor. The floor and the winepress shall not feed them and the new wine shall fail in her. The idea of the floor, uh, you know, the corn floor and the wine press won't feed them. It's the things that would normally bring them joy. Joy, by the way, um, is often referred to by the food and the wine uh, and, and the celebrations that they would have. And the Lord's saying, your wine press, man, it's not gonna feed you. Um, wine speaks of joy in the Bible. And here it says, rejoice not. And so that really tells us the first thing to be aware of when you're in rebellion against God. The first thing you might notice is a general loss of joy. Um, and, and it's funny because these things won't bring happiness uh, in the things that you once thought would bring joy. Um, isn't it interesting how we do think that, man, if I could just have that, uh, whatever it is, fill in the blank, then you'll have real joy. We think that our possessions, you know, just like they thought, well, our wine and our food will bring us joy. And the Lord says, you're, you're gonna find real dissatisfaction and real discontentment. Um, this is because we're gonna find out later because they were in rebellion against God. <laughs> um, it's an amazing thing that we have to learn that lesson, that those things that we covet or want, uh, 
Well, they really don't bring us that much joy. And isn't it interesting as time goes by, the things that you once coveted, how your opinion changes as time goes by? I'm reminded when I was nine years old, my next door neighbor gave me a bunch of his magazines. He was a Boy Scout and, and I, got, I didn't get to be a Boy Scout, but, but he gave me his Boy's Life magazines. Do you guys remember the Boy's Life magazine? Touch out a whittle and start a fire and you know, all that kind of stuff, boy, you know, boy stuff. And, uh, but I remember there was this thing in the back of the magazine that was so amazing. If you sold Christmas cards, then you could win a, a bunch of prizes. And there was a whole page that showed all the things you could get if you went door to door. Now you have to understand, I lived out in the country and like there was a house every five miles. Um, my, my mom's like, Brett, no. I was like, no mom, I wanna sell greeting cards, you know. And um, the, the prize that was the biggest prize on the page, there was, there was a bunch of goofy little prizes and stuff, but the biggest prize, I, I, that's what I was setting my sights on. You had to sell a lot of greeting cards. I forget how many, something like 28,000 or something like that um, uh, to sell that many greeting cards. Um, but if you, if you did that, you won an AMC Pacer. Uh, do you guys remember? Do you guys, <laughs> this is true. Do you guys remember the AMC Pacer? Uh, this was the grand prize for Boys Life Magazine if you were a guy who sold that. And I thought, wow, it looks a little bit like a fishbowl, but hey, if it, if it works, you know. Um, but I didn't sell the 22,000 or whatever I needed to sell. I actually sold like 100 cards um, after working, my poor mom driving me around um, the, the countryside. And so I had to lower my expectations. But what I, what I did get was a P-40 Flying Tiger uh, model airplane. And uh, the P-40 was a great airplane. And uh, this was one of those flying, you know, it had the little Cox uh, motor and it had the, um, uh, the string line where you could fly it in circles. Uh, and, uh, and man, I built it uh, out of, you know, balsa wood and, and, and all that and uh, put it all together and, and I got it to take off and went and just blew up. And my dreams were dashed that day as my P-40 was splintered into little tiny pieces. Um, and, and that's what I learned. It was at that time at nine years old, I, I learned things don't always measure up to your expectations, you know? And, and what is your AMC pacer? For some of you, it might've been that boyfriend in high school. Oh Lord, that's the one you want. And, and, and Lord, I, you know, I, and, and the Lord's like, no, you don't want that. And you're like, yes, I do. He's like, no, you don't. And, and, and some of you are thanking your, the Lord right now. Just, oh Lord, thank you for not giving me that boyfriend. Cause you know, your judgment in high school, maybe wasn't that great. Uh, or, or whatever it is, you know, things that we covet, things that we want. But, you know, Ecclesiastes chapter two is kind of one of those classic scriptures where, um, let me just read it to you. Listen to what Solomon, who had everything, everything a guy could ever want, listen to what he says. And this is Ecclesiastes two. I said in mine heart, go to now, I will pr prove thee with mirth and therefore enjoy pleasure. And behold, this is also vanity. I said of laughter, it's mad. Of mirth, what doeth it? I sought in mine heart to give myself unto wine, yet acquainting mine heart with wisdom and to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men, which they should do under heaven all the days of their life. I made me great works. I builded houses, I planted vineyards. I made gardens and orchards and planted trees of all kinds of fruits. I made pools of water to water therewith the wood that bringeth forth trees. I got servants, manservants and maidservants, servants born in my house. I had great possessions of great and small cattle. I gathered silver and gold and peculiar treasures of kings and the provinces. 
I got men singers and women singers and delights of men and musical instruments of all sorts. And then he goes on in verse 11, and I looked on all the works of my hands that I had wrought and the labor that I had labored to do. And behold, it was all vanity and vexation of spirit. There was no prophet under the sun. And in verse 17, therefore I hated life because the work that is wrought under the sun is grievous unto me. For all is vanity and vexation of spirit. The vexation of spirit phrase there that Solomon uses is chasing the wind. That's what he's saying. And if you read the book of Ecclesiastes, there's a lot more where that came from. Just total dissatisfaction with all the, the lures and the pleasures of this life. But you know, the Lord says, man, um, I want to satisfy your soul. What is it that really satisfies the human soul? People don't, don't get it until they really get it. But really, I believe Jesus is the one, Jesus alone is the one who satisfies. Even as he went to the woman at the well, hey, if you drink of the water I give you, you will never thirst again. But the, the water of this world, man, you'll be thirsty, you know, and you'll still be lacking. And the things that you thought were gonna give you joy, not only do they not give you joy, but when you find out they don't give you joy, you'll be even less happy than you were before you even thought of it in the first place. That's the way the world goes. And so this first notion here is the loss of joy. You think it's the stuff and the wine and the food that's gonna bring you happiness. And the Lord says, you can do all that till you're blue in the face, but your joy is gonna be uh, non-existent. It's not gonna happen. So he says, rejoice not, O Israel, verses one and two speaks of that, the, the loss of joy. Number two, we see in verse three, he's gonna say, now you're back in bondage. Right there in verse three, look at what it says. They shall not dwell in the Lord's land, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt as they shall eat unclean things in Assyria. You might say, Brett, that's kind of a weird contradiction. The Lord says, you're gonna to go to Egypt, but you're gonna eat things in Assyria. Is it Assyria or Egypt? Which one are you gonna end up in? Well, where did they end up, anybody? Assyria. So what's the Lord talking about here, going back to Egypt? Well, you gotta remember, all the way through the Bible from beginning to end, Egypt is a type of the world. And it's also that place of bondage where the children of Israel, where they were enslaved for 450 years. So Egypt had, had a lot associated with it. So the Lord says, you're going back to Egypt. You're going back to bondage is what he's saying. And you're gonna be in bondage up in Assyria. Um, and that's exactly what would happen in 722. Uh, tiglath pileser would take the, the Jews up north with hooks in their noses, where they'd be taken into bondage and never to be seen again. Like that, that's a sad story. And the Lord's saying, you're gonna be back in bondage. And that's what sin does. When we're rebelling against the Lord, you think you're free and you think you're getting away with it, but it leads you to bondage. And it's such a disappointment. You know, um, like Samson, you know, he thought he was free to do whatever he wanted, but he ends up, you know, blinded, binded, and grinding. Remember those things that he ended up with? He was a free, strong, powerful leader but he kept doing a sinful thing and eventually he was in bondage to his own sin. Lost his eyeballs and was grinding and bound there. That's what sin does. And so we see that here in verse three. But then the third section here is verses four and five where your worship will begin to fade. One of the signs that you're in rebellion against God, um, not only will joy start to you know, be lost, but you'll be back in bondage. But number three, worship will begin to fade. And we see that here um, in verse four. 
They shall not offer wine offerings to the Lord, neither shall they be pleasing unto him. Their sacrifices shall be unto them as the bread of mourners. All that eat thereof shall be polluted, for their bread for their soul shall not come into the house of the Lord. What will you do in the solemn day and in the day of the feast of the Lord? Man, when you're dragged up to Assyria, when will you sacrifice the Lord? And the answer, you won't. You won't have any chance or privilege or honor to do that. Your, your, your worship will end. In the Old Testament, going to the temple in Jerusalem and offering those sacrifices, that was their way of worship. When you and I find ourselves um, you know, uh, out of place, when, when people are worshiping the Lord, um, that's, that should be a red flag for you. If you come into a place like this, a sanctuary where worship is ascending and you're criticizing others, and you're saying, oh, look at that weirdo raising their hand up there and washing the window. The, there's the window washer praise person right there. No, wax on, wax off. And then you're like, oh, that person's carrying the TV. <laughs> Touchdown, you know, like, like, like all the worship, you're, you're back there criticizing people. Hey, if that's you, you know who you're, you're like in the Bible? Judas Iscariot. Does anybody really wanna be like Judas? Well, I don't think so because Judas is called like the son of perdition. He's like the worst dude in the Bible in some ways. He betrayed Jesus. But one of the first things we see him doing in John chapter 12, verses one through eight, there Mary breaks that costly ointment on Jesus' feet, washes his feet with her, with her hair. And the whole house is filled with the fragrance of that worship that she was offering to Jesus. And there was Judas Iscariot criticizing the worship that she was doing. Jesus perceiving what he was thinking, he was, the Bible tells us, Judas was saying, we could have sold that you know, perfume, is very important. It was like a year's salary. Uh, you know, uh, and so we could have taken that and given it to the poor. But the Bible tells us that Judas didn't even care about the poor. He actually wanted to pocket the money because he was a thief. And Jesus, knowing what he was thinking, he said, you know, leave her alone. Um, that's what I would say uh, if, you, if you wanna know what I think about people criticizing those that are worshiping the Lord. Um, I would try to echo what Jesus said. Jesus said, leave her alone against the day of my burying has she kept this. For the poor you'll always have with you, but me you have not always. Isn't that interesting that Jesus said, you're always gonna have the poor. Now, does the Bible teach us that we're supposed to care for the poor? Yes. But it is interesting because, you know, from time to time you'll hear people criticize churches for building a place of worship. You know, a place, uh, you should have given all that money to the poor when you built Athey Creek, uh, which we built a palatial warehouse. Uh, that's what this is. If you look closely, this is a warehouse, big box with uh, steel rafters. It's just a warehouse, um, nothing fancy. Uh, but, but at the same time, we still get criticism for, oh, they built that really fancy building. No, it's not, not really. But, but why did we do it? Because we wanted to have a place where we can worship the Lord together as a church family. So be careful when you're saying, man, they, they should have just you know, kept meeting at the school. I, I actually got a letter the other day. You should have stayed at the school. Um, that would have been wonderful, but we got kicked out um, uh, by the county of all places. It wasn't the school district. It was the county that kicked us out. Um, 
But, um, but then, and then you say, well, you should have stayed in the warehouse in Wilsonville. Somebody said, uh, well, we got kicked out of there too. Uh, no place to park and we had no place to go. And by the grace of God, we were able to finally build this building. Just the very week we had to be out of the building in Wilsonville is the very week we opened this building. Like it, it, was, it was a miraculous like th- thing. Yeah, that was like, uh, you know, for, if you weren't here, it was, it was a miraculous thing uh, that God did. Um, six years ago, I guess, is when we moved over here or somewhere about there. But, you know, the, the point that I make is um, be careful when you criticize what people are doing and, and when they wor- want to do things in, in the name of worshiping God. That's Judas criticizing. Um, and that's the person that God, he, he says, leave her alone. Leave her alone. Um, and, and in some ways, that's something that should be a red flag for you. If you're a person that's cynical about worship or not a worshiper of the Lord, um, watch out because that might just be a point where your heart is just not really in line with where it needs to be. The people of Israel, they said, yeah, we don't really care as much about worship anymore. Um, and the Lord's like, what are you gonna do when you're gonna wanna worship in Assyria, but you won't be able to? Um, worship will begin to fade. And we see that in verses four and five. Well, it goes on, then we see in verses six, uh, all the way through 13, the next section, they. Uh, their rebellion leads to a loss of discernment. Um, one of the, 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 the characteristics of a person who is in rebellion against God, you'll not have a very good sense of right and wrong, what's good and what's evil. It goes on in verse six. For lo, they are gone because of destruction. Egypt shall gather them up, Memphis shall bury them. The pleasant places for their silver, nettles shall possess them, thorns shall be in their tabernacles. In the days of visitation, uh, the days of visitation are come. The days of recompense are come. Israel shall know it. The prophet is a fool. The spiritual man is mad for the multitude of thine iniquity and the great hatred. The watchman of Ephraim was with my God but the prophet is a snare of a fowler in all his ways and hatred in the house of his God. They have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. Therefore, he will remember their iniquity. He will visit their sins. Whew. Oh, if you know your Bible, if you've read your Bible and you know what's being referred to here, this is like one of the most horrible things to refer to, the days of Gibeah. We'll talk about that in a second. But how did they lack discernment? They were laughing at the prophets of God. All the prophets that were solid, they laughed at and mocked and said, yeah, whatever. You know, Jeremiah, they threw in a pit um, and, and left him there in a dungeon. Said, yeah, this guy, what up, whatever. Th- th- that was the Southern you know, tribes. But here in the North, they were blowing off Amos and Hosea and these prophets just totally blowing them off, calling them foolishness. The prophet is a fool and the spiritual man is a madman is what they were saying. It's a little bit like today, you know, that we, um, we live in a, a culture that's so rebellious that when somebody is speaking the truth, a, a word from the Lord, um, people think you're crazy. And yet it's amazing when you really look at what they're saying and what they're saying is actually crazy. You know, the Supreme Court today is arguing this abortion issue and man, we should be praying as Christians. This is a key and important time in our country, I believe. And uh, I would just say we, uh, today and the next, next days, we should be praying very much because this, this is a, a huge thing. And you know, it's, it's amazing to me because um, 
people that are you know, pro-abortion, they like to say pro-choice because it sounds so much better, but it's pro-abortion. Um, and if you know what abortion really is, it's how could you be pro-abortion? Like if you, if you just look at it medically or biologically, what's actually happening? So while pro-abortion zealots square off against equally zealous pro-life you know, forces, the great mass of people in America I've found um, kind of are in what they perceive to be the middle ground. And this, this makes me concerned. Um, some of you might even be in that group. You might say, Brad, yeah, you're a Christian pastor. You have to say all this stuff about abortion. Um, and I, I'm not really pro-abortion, but you know, I, just, I believe that you know, women should have the right to kind of whatever, but I would, I would never personally get an abortion. Um, that, that's really hard for me you know, uh, as a pastor to kind of stand by. Their, their position, you know, your position of a person who's kind of in the middle ground, it kind of keeps you out of the crossfire and sort of above the debate. And, and the motto is, I, I wouldn't have an abortion, but I support a woman's white right to choose. But why not have an abortion? Like if, if you're against it, why are you against it? Have you asked yourself that? Those of you that are saying, I, I would not do it. Well, why, why wouldn't you not do it? Well, because I believe it's a life. Well, well, if you believe it's a life, then why would you ever support someone else taking that life? Um, you know, uh, on, on what basis could a person personally be opposed save a conviction that the, the fetus is actually a human person. And if one has that conviction, how could he or she support someone else's right to choose? If you believe a fetus is a life, which I believe it is, and anybody who knows basic biology knows it is. So the political views of the woman carrying the fetus cannot change the nature of the fetus. Do you understand that? Does everybody understand that? It's a baby, it's a life, no matter what your political views are. That's the amazing thing. So people think, well, Brett, you're a fool because you're, you're anti-abortion. No, I, I'm actually pro-Bible. And the Bible calls the, the fetus actually um, a, a work of God. And the Lord views it as a life long before it's ever born um, through the womb, uh, through the birth canal, long before. The Bible seems to treat uh, a human life that it begins at conception. That's the way the Bible handles it. You know, it's amazing the crazy, they think we're crazy, but the irony of it to me is the double standards and stuff like that. We frown upon women who subject their unborn children to alcohol and smoke or drugs. Um, yet we lobby to protect a woman's right to subject her fetus to an intentionally deadly injection of saline. Like that, that's an amazing um, craziness. We cheer you know, advances in medicine to protect or save an unborn baby um, while we support the right of a woman to kill the fetus. Like that's, that's something that we've, we're gonna have to stand before God nationally, I think, and answer for. Um, the, the horrors of abortion. And that's why what's happening in the Supreme Court is so important right now. We'll see, we'll see what happens. But we should be praying about this. Um, you see, when I see what the Bible say here about the people of Israel, they were doing the same things. In fact, these people were, um, and even in Solomon's time, speaking of Solomon, they were sacrificing babies on the altars of Moloch and Chemosh, pagan deities. And for the same reasons, we do abortion today. We do abortion today because you know, you wanna, you're not ready for a baby and you, you don't wanna let it slow you down in life and you wanna live comfortably and prosperously. You still wanna have your sex, but you, you, you don't wanna have to deal with the, the idea of a pregnancy or a baby. And so we're doing the exact same thing 
Uh, and it's so heartbreaking to me. Um, you say, well, Brett, that, that's, that's, that's bad, but how bad could this really have been, these people? Well, did you see what it said there in verse nine? They have deeply corrupted themselves. How deep? How deep was Israel's corruption? Well, it says here, they've deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. Do you have something in your life's history that you wish nobody knew about? Something that you wish never happened? <laughs> something that you wished in your past could just go away? That you, that you did, but, but you wished it was never on record? And as soon as you're reminded of that thing, you're, oh, you're what, I'm an idiot. And people, yeah, you're an idiot. Just depending on how bad it was. Well, Israel had one of those moments. Did you know that? And it was in the days of Gibeah. You wanna know how bad it was? It makes, in some ways, Sodom and Gomorrah look like nothing. Do you remember what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah? Um, the, the two angels came to visit Lot and the men of Sodom were smashing down the door saying, we wanna have sex with those two men. Um, the men of the city, homosexual relationship. And Lot offered his daughters and the men said no and they kept beating down. Remember this, the horrible story? And eventually um, Lot was taken out of the city and the city was destroyed. But did you know there's a story that kind of almost is worse than that story? And it's the days of Gibeah. There was something that happened in Judges chapter 19. You can jot it down if you want to and you can read it later. You don't wanna read that chapter to your kids though for a little tuck in. It's not a great Bible story for your children. It's another one you didn't color in Sunday school. So what was happening is there was a Levite who had a concubine. Now is that, is that actually a good thing? A Levite with a concubine right there, we got a problem. Um, but this Levite had a concubine. They come riding around, they go from Jebus, which was Jerusalem at the time, and they end up going to Gibeah, but there was no place in the inn for this couple to stay. Um, so this old man's out of field, it's a long story, but the guy invites him and says, man, you better come and sleep with, at our house because it's not safe in the streets. There was no room for them to come. So this man and his concubine goes into this old man's house with his daughter and they go in there. Well, all the men of the city of Gibeah start smashing down the doors saying, we wanna have sex with that guy that just went into your house. And the guy said, not so. And he said, here's my daughter and here's his concubine, these two ladies, have sex with them. Well, unlike the story of Lot, the two ladies are kicked out the door by the guy, the concubine and the daughter and the men they just totally uh, abuse these poor women. And the guy that's sleeping, you know, there in the house, just, uh, I hope my wife, our concubine's doing okay. I hope she's okay out there. He's sleeping in the house. Well, he comes and the next morning opens up the door and his wife, concubine, is laying on the doorstep with her hand reaching up the, to the door. And he says, come on, let's get up and go. We gotta get out of here. And she doesn't move. And so he looks down and kind of shakes her and finds out she's dead. And he's so upset by his concubine, the Levite, his concubine was raped and murdered by these horrible people of Gibeah. He takes this, this is where it gets gross. I'm just telling you the Bible. He chops her into 12 pieces with a knife and sends all the 12 pieces of this woman to the 12 tribes of Israel. Every tribe leader gets this piece and in the mail from this guy. And it was the, the, the men of Benjamin that did this there in Gibeah. And so if you keep going into chapter 20 and you read what happens, the Lord says, I want you to crush Benjamin completely. 
The tribe of Benjamin almost ceases to exist because the people of Israel are told by God, this horrible thing that happened in Gibeah, it's the worst thing that's ever happened in Israel's history. That's what the Lord says about it. So he says, pretty much you're gonna erase the tribe of Benjamin, which they almost did. There was, there's only a few people of the tribe of Benjamin were left. It's, it's a crazy story, but it's one of those stories the Israeli people of the Bible would have rather never have brought up because it's one of those most horrific stories in Israel's history. And here, Hosea the prophet says, just like the men of Gibeah, you're just like that. That's how bad it's gotten. Oh, don't bring that story up. The people of Hosea's time must have thought, come on, Hosea, we're not that bad. Isn't it funny how we almost think of ourselves as more pure than we really are? But this, this is like, you can't bring up a more insulting, horrible thing than what Hosea brings up in verse nine. And he's gonna bring it up again before we're done tonight. So I, I, I hate to tell you that story because it's a horrible story and probably should have checked your kids into the children's ministry tonight. Um, but but you, you have to understand, this is, this is what Hosea is saying. As the days, they have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. And you'll see in your cross-reference Bible, a reference to Judges chapter 19. Now, you know, by the way, in the book of Judges, the people that were doing these things, it was characterized by the very final verse of the book of Judges. It says this, in those days, there was no king in Israel and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. They could care less what God thought, but they did that which was right in their own sight. And so that's how far they'd come away from God. And, and now Hosea is saying, you're just like those people in those days. Is he being hyperbolic? I don't think so. I think he's just being real with these people. You guys don't even realize how bad you are, Hosea is saying here. And because of that, they'd, they'd really lost their ability to discern what was right and wrong, how good or how bad they were. Their discernment was out the window knowing how bad they were. So Hosea is saying, this is how bad you guys are as the men of uh, Gibeah, that's, so are you. Brutal, heavy. Um, man, you can't get much stronger words, I think, if you understand the history. But all that to say, he's pouring on thick. So, so far they've got, you know, the loss of joy or joy seems to be diminishing. Number two, we've seen, you know, you're back in bondage, worship begins to fade, and then you uh, end up losing your discernment. You don't even know how bad you really are. Um, and let's keep reading on that because it goes on in verse 10. I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the first ripe in the fig tree at her first time, but they went to Baal Peor and separated themselves unto that shame and their abominations were according as they loved. Now this is um, a re reference, Baal Peor. Again, it helps to know some of the stories in your Bible. Do you remember the story of Balaam, the prophet with the talking donkey, Mr. Ed, that whole story? Um, if you re remember in Numbers chapter 25, that's where they ended up being really cursing themselves at Baal Peor, which was a place where they mixed themselves with the Midianites. Remember Phineas stuck the, the, the man and the woman through with a spear, the story we talked about last week. That was what happened at Baal Peor. And again, uh, Hosea is just bringing up all the, the bad stories, reminding them of who they are, uh, who they were, but also who they are. Um, he's reminding them, sinners. Verse 11, as for Ephraim, their glory shall fly away like a bird from the birth and from the womb and from the, con uh, the conception. 
though they bring up their children, yet I will bereave them that there shall not be a man left. Yea, woe unto them to when I depart, uh, when I depart from them. Ephraim, as I saw Tyrus, is planted in a pleasant place, but Ephraim shall bring forth his children to the murderer. Um, this is what's gonna happen. Ephraim's going down. They're not gonna have descendants. Uh, they're gonna be toast. They're gonna be wiped out. And that's exactly what happened if you know the story. But that brings them to the next uh, thing that's gonna happen. And it's linked to what was said there in verse 13. But in verse 14, he nails it down even more. And, it, and, and the next thing you start to see in your life if you're in rebellion is fruitlessness. Um, having children was a sign of fruitfulness, but their children, they would have no uh, children, it says there. They'd be given to the murderer in verse 13. But in verse 14, it says, give them, O Lord, what wilt thou give? Give them a miscarrying womb and, a, and dry breasts. All their wickedness is in Gilgal. For there I hated them. For the wickedness of their doings, I will drive them out of mine house. I will love them no more. All their princes are revolters. Ephraim is smitten, their root is dried up, they shall bear no fruit. Yea, though they bring forth, yet I will slay even the beloved fruit of their womb. They're gonna become fruitlessness, or they're gonna have fruitlessness because of their sinfulness. Man, that's one of the things if you feel like, man, why are these attributes, you know, uh, the lack of joy and, and all this, even to this point of fruitlessness or barrenness, you might even say. Now we have to be careful, of course, and I have to say this because so many couples deal with the idea of miscarrying and um, that you have to understand this is not the Lord saying when someone has a miscarriage that it's because of their sin. I wanna make sure you understand that. Um, but in this case, the Lord is using that as an example that their fruit of their womb would be uh, dried up because of their sin. They would not have corporately as a nation. We're not talking about an individual. We're talking about an, um, sort of an, um, um, an analogy of how they'd become barren and fruitless with their children. Uh, horrible, horrible thing. Um, but make sure you understand, um, God is not judging you if you have had a miscarriage. I gotta say that because that's one of the hard things that people go through. And by the way, uh, it's so hard as a church to know how to help people that go through that because half the people that go through miscarriage, they don't want anybody to know about it. They don't want anybody, they don't wanna hear from anybody. They don't wanna have people talk to them or call them or give condolences or anything like that. There's other people who feel like they just want people around them and have some compassion and love. And, and, uh, and, and it's really hard because uh, we don't always know which one you are. But if you're going through a time like that as a couple or whatever, we would love to be able to help you and encourage you. If you, if you want, call, call us up, let us know. Uh, there's no way for us to know unless you uh, let us know. And I, but I know that's a really hard thing for so many people. But that's why it's such a hard example to give. God gives to the people of Ephraim saying, man, you're gonna be barren. Um, you know, it's interesting because um, when we, when we have good fruit in our lives, I think that that could be a sign that the Lord's blessing us. Good fruit is a sign of blessing. Um, now, sometimes God is giving us fruit just because he's gracious and kind. And that's awesome. Um, but sometimes when you start to see the fruit diminish, you might do just a little self-check and say, Lord, am I rebelling against you? Why is the fruit in my life seemingly waning or fading? 
Why do I feel not as fruitful? And, and I think sometimes we've seen that corporately in churches where churches once were fruitful and vivacious and vibrant and great, but then the fruit started to stink a little somewhere along the way. The fruit seemed a little bit rotten. And, and I've seen churches go through this where they should have done a little bit of a self-check. Are, are we going the wrong direction? Or are we doing something that's maybe contrary to what God wants for us? Because people from the outside, I've noticed, can almost see it better than the people that are on the inside. You look in and go, man, pull up. You, you want people to pull up because you, you want the church to flourish and be fruitful. But I've seen that where churches say, yeah, whatever, we're not listening to you because uh, you're not part of our church. But man, fruitfulness is something the church should be. Uh, I believe any good church is gonna see fruit. And if a church is not seeing fruit, and if it's dwindling or falling away or whatever, you gotta sit up and say, okay, what are we doing wrong? Because um, it seems like oftentimes the Lord will cut off that, that fruitfulness uh, if, if the church is not going the right direction. And that can also be true for us personally in our own lives as well. So. All that to say, fruitlessness is one of those things. And then finally, um, uh, number six on our list here is ultimately the end result is you are cast away, cast away. It says this, verse 17, my God will cast them away because they did not hearken unto him and they shall be wanderers among the nations. Cast out is the idea there, verse 17. Now, um, one of the things we've covered in previous studies is when does the Lord cast out someone ultimately? There is a point. Remember, the spirit of the God will not always strive with man, it says in Genesis 6. And like in Romans 1, he says, eventually, after they're neither thankful or giving glory to God for, and knowing that he's the creator, but not giving him credit for the creation, and their stubborn hearts and foolish hearts just went against the Lord, and they, they did all kinds of sin. Romans chapter 1 says, eventually, the Lord will give you over to your own lusts and your own sins. There's a point where God says, okay, you're gonna get what you want. And, uh, and that's ultimately being cast out. God forbid any of you or us get to that point where we're rebelling so far, so long that the Lord says, okay, I'm gonna give you over. My spirit will no longer strive with you. Um, how do you know if you've reached that point? I'm not sure we ever really will until a person ends up in hell. I think it's in, when in hell you'll go, oh, there's a point where the Lord said, okay, you, you're done. Um, but man, never, never allow yourself to get that far away from God. One of the things I love about God among hundreds is how quickly he is to forgive the sinner. I, I'm convinced during Hosea's time, even though they were as bad as the days of Gibeah, um, I, I'm convinced should they have repented and said, okay, Lord, we repent of our sins and we're gonna follow you and break off our worship of Baal and stop doing this and stop doing that. We're gonna follow you in your word. I think the Lord, like he did every other time, would forgive them of their sins and start fresh. The Lord we serve is the God of the second chance and the 50th chance and the 150th chance and the 150,000th chance. Like the Lord, his mercies are new every morning. And anyone who repents, the Lord will just quickly receive them back. So if you're sensing your life is starting to exhibit some of these uh, characteristics we just looked at, repent. Go to the Lord and come clean and break off your sins. And the Lord says, I will forgive you of your sins and I will put your sins as far as the east is from the west. I will remember them no more. I love that we have a, a very redemptive, forgiving, uh, loving God who will justify you just as if you'd never sinned at all. I love that. Well, let's go through chapter 10. 
Um, he continues there in verse, verse one, Israel is an empty vine. He bringeth forth fruit unto himself according to the multitude of his fruit. He hath increased the altars according to the goodness of his land. They have made goodly images. Now this might be a little confusing, but what's happening here is, you know, um, these, uh, these Jew, the Jews in the, in the north there, they were doing their fruit trees and they were getting fruit, but it was like sort of bad fruit. And um, it's interesting to me that, um, that they kept you know, getting some fruit, but they, what were they doing? They were getting goodly images. The idea is they were thanking Baal for the fruit that they had. The Lord says, you're getting bad fruit and the bad fruit you're getting, you're giving sort of, um, you know, um, you're giving Baal credit for the fruit that you're, you've been get, getting. Now this is where we have to be careful as Christians. Um, it's an interesting thing when people talk about this, but I'm always amazed at when people say, you know, you don't judge. Christians shouldn't be judgy. Um, would you turn your, in your Bible to Matthew, to the Sermon on the Mount there, Matthew chapter seven, where Jesus talked about this, because I think we've, we've forgotten a couple things about being a good Christian. And one of the things we need to know about in Matthew chapter seven is um, about judging. Should Christians ever judge? Um, well, if you read Matthew chapter seven, verse one, the answer is no. Check it out. In Matthew chapter seven, Sermon on the Mount, judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. And with what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest the mote or the speck or the splinter that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in your own eye? Now I think Jesus is being funny here. This is hilarious. You're all worried about the little speck in your brother's eye, but you're walking around, boom, boom, boom. There's like a big beam in your eye. Like that's ridiculous, but that's the point. Jesus is saying, this is ridiculous. So, you know, you, you, you say, well, the Bible says don't judge. Jesus said that in Matthew chapter seven. But isn't it interesting in the very same chapter, Jesus talked about us judging and how we're supposed to judge? How so? Well, it's, it's more of a positive sense, but check it out. Um, in verse 15 of that same chapter, Jesus said, beware of the false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. You shall know them by what? Their fruits. Fruit inspectors. You're supposed to judge the fruit. Check it out. You'll know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns and figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast in the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits you shall know them. And it goes on, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. And he goes on, but the point is, <clears throat> we're not supposed to judge, be judgy, that's correct. Um, judging, you know, when, you're, when you've got a splinter in, in a brother's eye and you've got a beam in your own, you've got to be careful not to be judging one another in that way. That's bad, Jesus condemns that. But at the same time, you'll know them by their fruits. It means you have to be sort of fruit inspectors, and there's a bit of a judging that goes on there. I'm, I'm gonna see what kind of fruit this person has. And if it's a person who has bad fruit, you have to understand where they come from because good fruit doesn't come <clears throat> from a bad person. That's what Jesus is saying here. And we're supposed to be careful about that. 
So here the Lord is in a sense, judging the people of Israel saying, you guys, you've got fruit back to Hosea chapter 10. He's saying, yeah, you guys have fruit, but it's bad fruit. And then the fruit that you're getting, you're giving praise to Baal for it. Uh, that's the idea of these building these altars and what have you that they're doing there in verse one, um, making goodly images and, and all that stuff, building their altars in the middle of verse one. So he goes on in verse two, their heart <clears throat> is divided. Now shall they be found faulty. He shall break down their altars. He shall spoil their images. For now they shall say, we have no king because we feared not the Lord. When, uh, at what then should the king do to us? Um, by the way, we're referring to something I kind of forgot to mention way up in verse 15 of chapter nine. He said, all their wickedness is in Gilgal. We've been talking about these places and what's associated with them. Um, Gibeah was the place of that horrible story I told you. Baal Peor was a place where Balaam cursed the Jews and the Midianites, that whole thing. But Gilgal was the place where they said, do you remember this? We want a king, we want a king. Remember that story? They said, we don't want Samuel anymore, we want a king. And the Lord, the Lord says to Samuel, Samuel, don't be bummed out. They're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. And so he told Samuel, you give them a king. And they're not gonna like it once they get it because their king is gonna make slaves of their sons and daughters and they're gonna be killed in war and they're gonna be heavily taxed, but they want a king, so I'm gonna give it to them. Um, but that was the rebellion at Gilgal. That's what's being referred to in verse 15 of chapter nine, but it's also what we're, um, we're referring to in verse three of chapter 10. For uh, now they shall say, we have no king because we feared not the Lord. <clears throat> what then should we, uh, a king do to us? So it's all talking about that. Um, their heart is divided. What a phrase. The heart of Israel was divided. Half to the, the Lord, half to Baal. That was the characteristic more than any other place in the Bible of the people of Hosea's time. They were divided. <clears throat> they were worshiping Baal and God in the same sentence. They'd go to the temple in Jerusalem and say, oh, Lord Jehovah, we worship you, and Baal, we worship you too. Like they were double-minded uh, in their hearts and they worshiped, they were worshiping two gods or many gods and the Lord calls them out as, as a divided people. Um, and that's why, like in 1 Kings chapter 18, do you remember what you know, Elijah the prophet said? I'll read to you 1 Kings 18, 21. And Elijah came to all the people and said, how long halt ye or skip around is the word there between two opinions. If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answer, answered not a word. Remember, that was the whole Super Bowl of the gods of Baal versus Jehovah. And uh, we know who won there. Uh, Baal didn't show up because he's not real. And God showed up and brought fire down for heaven, from heaven for Elijah the prophet. And all the prophets of Baal were killed that day. Crazy story. But here's Elijah saying, how long will you, the word halt in the King James, how long will you dance around these two opinions if God is God, worship him. If Baal is God, <clears throat> worship him. And that's what's happening here. Hosea is saying, man, you, you guys have a divided heart. You're halfway there with the Lord, <clears throat> excuse me, but you're halfway there with um, Baal. Um, jot this down in your notes, James chapter one. Um, you get a little bit of a sense in a kind of a New Testament kind of way from this. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. <clears throat> that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. 
For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Man, we don't wanna be double-minded men and women because there's an instability there and it's, it's corruption. That's the condition of the children of Israel. You gotta kinda make your choice. Um, if you're gonna follow Baal, follow Baal. If you're gonna follow God, follow God. <clears throat> lukewarm, you know, I would that you be hot or cold, but if you're lukewarm, mixture, um, not committed one way or the other, then you're going down. Um, have you ever noticed that the Lord in his word talks about that? You kind of need to go full bore or not at all. It's like uh, game on or don't be playing around. Like, like if you're trying to play at religion, then uh, you're wasting your time. Like there's an amazing thing that the Bible, it's all throughout the scripture. <clears throat> That's the problem. Their heart was divided. They didn't know which way they really wanted to go. So they really didn't go after the Lord full bore. Um, speaking of illustrations, um, uh, this is one of the things that I felt uh, you learn from motocross. And by the way, motocross is the only fun sport that has the words cross in it. Um, I'm just gonna say, uh, one Sunday I had a guy come up, hey, cross country, I said, fun sports. <laughs> but um, <clears throat> but um, I, I was thinking about this this afternoon about, uh, you know, in motocross, there's so many lessons that we learned over the years, but one is you kind of got to commit. Um, and we used to do our Tuesday night Athey Creek motocross and we get 30 or 40 people up there with their dirt bikes at Sandy's racetrack up there. It was really awesome. Um, I got a, brought a picture of Joey and I, so you know it's real. So you're not just thinking, because most people look at me and say, you're not a motocross guy, but this is Joey and I a couple summers back. Um, I'm the higher one there. I'm just putting a note there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> My son Joey and I are pretty competitive when it comes to dirt bikes, um, but this was a few summers back. But one of the things about this motocross track, and, and this is what we used to tell the guys, you kinda, if you're gonna jump, you gotta commit. If you go sort of half throttle on a double jump, so here's the thing, one jump is a point and there's another jump that's a point. And if you just sort of half-heartedly go over it, you're gonna hit the other one like a wall and you'll die and we'll take an ambulance ride to the hospital. And several of our Anthony Creek guys did that. Uh, ambulance rides, that's why we don't do it as much anymore. <laughs> People are getting hurt too much. But, um, but I've been riding since I was a little kid and, and one thing that you learn is if you're gonna go for the big double jump, you better throttle on. You gotta pin it and go full bore or you will die. <laughs> like it's just that simple. Um, and I, I kind of feel like what a lesson to learn. I, I feel like that's what the Lord says, you gotta pin it to win it. You know, go for it. What does the Bible say? You know, the Bible tells us, you know, what server you do, <clears throat> what are you supposed to do? Do it hardly? Oh, I, yeah, yeah, I thought that. Heartily, yes, do it heartily. That's the problem is sometimes I think we as Christians, we sort of want to putt into the jump and say, well, let's see, we'll give this a sort of a try. You can't really do that with God. You've got to say, I'm going to throttle on, pin it to win it and go full bore because that's what the Lord asks of us. Whatsoever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men. Um, this double-mindedness, this instability of sort of half-heartedly saying, yeah, kind of follow God, kind of follow Baal. The Lord just all throughout his word says, no, no, no. I need you to commit and to um, go full bore. And I, I, I mention that because <clears throat> we live in a culture that's getting more and more comfortable with half-heartedness. Doing things sort of halfway or just kind of <clears throat> dabbling in faith. But I don't think that's what the Lord's asking of us. 
And that's the problem with the people of Hosea's time. They're just sort of dabbling and their heart was divided. That's, that's what that verse two is really describing. There's a divided heart of the people. <clears throat> and they wanted a king. They didn't want to follow God. And they were worshiping Baal and Jehovah. They were divided. <clears throat> well, verse, um, verse four. It goes on, it says, they have spoken words swearing falsely and making a covenant. Thus judgment springeth up as hemlock in the furrows of the field. Uh, the inhabitants of Samaria shall fear because of the calves of Bethaven. For the people thereof shall mourn over it and the priests thereof that rejoiced on it for the glory thereof because it is departed from it. It shall also be carried unto Assyria for a present to King Jarev. Remember the king, a warrior, the name there uh, in replacement of Tiglath-Pilaser is coming. Ephraim shall receive shame and Israel shall be ashamed of his own counsel. As for Samaria, her king is cut off as the foam upon the water. The high places also of Avon, uh, the sin of Israel shall be, de uh, be destroyed. The thorn and the thistle shall come up on their altars and they shall say to the, uh, the mountains, cover us and to the hills fall on us. That's how bad it's gonna get. They're gonna get to a point where they say, we wanna die. We want the mountains just to fall on us and crush us. Now, um, what is this whole thing about Samaria and Beth David? Well, those are two places that reminded us of the, of the calves of Jeroboam. Remember when Jeroboam came as king of the north, he said, I don't want you guys going down to Jerusalem to worship God, so just worship these calves. And they made these little tiny worship centers uh, but they built these golden calves and people came and worshiped the golden calves. These are your gods, worship them. Uh, how did that work out when they were coming out of Egypt and they made the golden calf? Um, not so good. But um, if there's one thing we've learned from history is we never learn anything from history. And that's the problem with the Jews. They, they made golden calves again, did the same mistake. And the Lord says, your calves are gonna be stolen by King Yariv. Um, and you're gonna be wiped out like the foam of the sea and you're gonna wanna die and you're gonna say, oh, mountains fall on us. By the way, this, this makes me reflect. Is there another time where people are gonna say that? Yeah, the book of Revelation. Let's, let's review that just for a second because we don't wanna, in Revelation chapter six, during the tribulation period, which you and I as Christians are not gonna be there. We're gonna be raptured, taken up to be out of the world at that time. Um, but it says in the kings of the earth, Revelation 6, 15, um, and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains, notice um, the, everybody is involved with this, not just the, the, the people in poverty or the low life you know, scum of the earth. These are the high and mighty, the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the chief captains and the mighty men and every bond man and free man hid themselves in dens and the rocks and mountains. And they said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come and who shall be able to stand? The same thing the people of Hosea would say when the Assyrians would come is just a little foreshadow of what's gonna happen during the tribulation period. When that time comes, people will seek to want to die and kill themselves. In fact, if you fast forward to Revelation chapter nine, verse six, it says, and in those days, shall men seek death and shall not find it and shall desire to die and death shall free from, flee from them. Like that's gonna be a pretty horrible thing if you're wanting to die, but you won't be able to. Um, that's the days 
of, um, of Hosea, but also the days of the tribulation. There's a parallel there. Well, be that as it may, it goes on there in verse nine. Again, we're gonna refer to that horrible story, verse nine. It's chapter nine, verse nine, chapter 10, verse nine. Uh, it says in verse nine, O Israel, thou hast sinned from the days of Gibeah. There they stood, the battle of Gibeah against the children of iniquity did not overtake them. Um, that battle is the one I told you where they came and wiped out the men of Benjamin because of their horrible, grotesque sins. Um, and that's a horrible, horrible story. If you want, you can read, uh, of course, Judges um, chapter 19 uh, and 20, and there's that horrible story. Um, so he repeats that in verse nine. Uh, verse 10, it is, um, it is in my desire that I should chastise them and the people shall be gathered against them when they shall bind themselves in their two, uh, their two furrows. Um, and Ephraim is as an heifer that is taught and loveth to tread out the corn, but I passed over upon her fair neck and I will make Ephraim to ride. Judah shall plow and Jacob shall break his clods. Now, what's this whole thing about the heifer that's happy to plow, but then it seems like it gets harder? Well, that's exactly what the Lord is saying. They're going from easy, verse 11, to what's brutal is what, what that uh, farming um, about their furrows and the calf and the heifer and all that. It's going from easy to hard. And that's what the Lord says. And the Bible tells us the way of the transgressor is hard. So that's what's gonna happen here. Verse 12 is saying, um, the, the Lord is still sort of pleading for them to seek the Lord. Verse 12, sow to yourselves in righteousness. Um, you know, reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground for it is time to seek the Lord till he come and rain righteousness upon you. See, even in the midst of all this horrible stuff that the people are doing, the Lord still sneaks in with Hosea. Come on, just seek the Lord, repent. Um, the sad thing is we know how this story ends, but it's still the Lord just lovingly saying, come on, if there's anybody who will seek me, please do. But nobody really does. That's why the, the whole nation's gonna be carried off into captivity. Um, and the Lord is seeking to rain righteousness upon you. That, what a glorious and gracious God we serve. Um, well, verse 13 speaks of a battle, 13 and 14, that we don't really know much about actually. It says in verse 13, you have plowed wickedness, you have reaped iniquity, you have eaten the fruit of lies because thou didst trust in thy way in the multitude of thy mighty men. Therefore shall a tumult arise among thy people and all thy fortresses shall be spoiled as shall man uh, spoiled Bet Arvel in the day of battle. The mother was dashed in pieces upon her children. So shall Bethel, do unto you because your great wickedness. In a morning shall the king of Israel utterly be cut off. Wow, this is kind of a heavy ending of chapter 10. Um, basically there's this battle that's gonna destroy all their fortresses. And, and by the way, there's no real mention of this battle in the Bible except for right here. But in extra biblical literature, you can read about this thing that happened between Shalman and spoiling Bet Arbel. Um, there's actually some writings in it. Basically just says it was one of the most brutal battles in that region in history. Um, and it just tells us that the women were dashed in pieces upon our children. Like that's just a, a horrible scene that's because of their sin. 
And, uh, and then Israel would be cut off after that utterly and lose their king. And that's what happened. The Assyrians would come and wipe them out. You know, the, the thing we, we learn about this is God is still a righteous God. And, and you know, when we talk about on Sunday, you know, um, pastors that talk about unhitching themselves from the Old Testament, here's why they say that. These are horrible stories and we know God is gracious. So read your New Testament and don't read the Old Testament. That's what their conclusion is. But why would we read the Old Testament? Is God gonna destroy us like he did the Assyrians? Well, not as Christians, of course not. Does the Lord ever destroy the righteous with the wicked? No. So then why did we read all that horrible stuff? But they're unrighteous, they're going down and we're declared righteous in Christ. Why shouldn't we unhitch ourselves from this? Well, here's the thing about this. There's so much about this. One is we need to remember God still is the same yesterday, today and forever. God's still gonna destroy the wicked. And you and I, as people that are saved by God's grace, we should remind people that, man, you gotta repent. Otherwise, the people that we know and love, we work with, our neighbors that are rebelling against God right now, this is their future. These horrific stories and the doom of these Old Testament people should be the thing that drives everyone to Jesus. So we have that, and that's the first thing, that we love people and care enough about them because the doom of Israel is where people are headed if they have rejected Christ. That's why you and I should be given to the preaching of the good news of the gospel, that the Lord forgives sins. But the second part of this is equally important, and that is um, you and I should want nothing to do with these behaviors. Um, even though we're not declared wicked like these people and we're you know, doomed, we can still engage in some of these practices. And some of these things we've gone over about you know, the joy being starting to diminish and our discernment going out the window and us linking ourselves with other people that we shouldn't be linking ourselves with, even as they tried to align themselves with the Egyptians um, and the Assyrians. They tried to align themselves with the very people that would doom them. Like we can learn lessons, just daily life lessons. Uh, not to be double-minded, but to be committed to the Lord and not to you know, be half-hearted about God. There's so many lessons here that, that I'm convicted of that Lord, oh, sharpen us. Make us hunger and thirst after righteousness. Help us to be people with gumption who serve the Lord, pinning it, just throttle on. We, we need to go for it. These are days, you and I are living in days where it's not time to be messing around with other things. Halfway between Baal, halfway between God. As Christians, we should want nothing to do with that. And I believe you and I are living in days where those lines are being drawn. And actually, if you're gonna be a person who's walking with Christ and serving Christ, I think the lines are being drawn where if you're gonna be hardcore for the Lord, it might cost you in the days we're living. People are gonna have to uh, say, do I really wanna follow the Lord wholeheartedly or am I gonna sort of cave and get into this culture that we're living in and sort of ride the, the fence a little bit? I think the days are coming where there's gonna be more and more issues popping up where uh, you're gonna have to make a decision. Am I gonna be sold out for the Lord or am I gonna kind of compromise and live sort of half-heartedly for the Lord? I hope that the Lord does that work in our hearts as we read through the Bible to say, you know what? We don't want anything to do with that. Rather than saying, how far can we be and still be saved, but not have to be too crazy holy. Instead of asking that, I think we should be asking, how holy can we be? How righteous and set apart for God's purpose and plan can we actually be as we serve the Lord? That's what I go away with from Hosea chapter 10. And now we're postured and ready for chapter 11, where we're gonna see a little bit more of the love of God. I'm looking forward to that. I like talking about the love of God, don't you? 
Yeah. Lord, we are thankful for your love and your kindness, but we do see that your love maybe wouldn't be appreciated as much or even discerned without knowing the other side of the coin, Lord. And so we take these chapters and we're reminded of what sin does and how brutal it messes people's lives up. But I pray that you'd just draw us toward yourself, Lord, that we'd be holy and set aside for your purpose. Lord, help us not to play games in these days, but to serve you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Lord, I pray that we'd, we'd do what we do heartily as unto you and not unto men. Help us to do that, Lord. And I pray that you'd sharpen us, help us to discern what's going on in these days we're living. I pray that we'd set our lives aside for your purpose on every level. Lord, give us wisdom in these days. And we offer this now in Jesus' name, amen.